This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week, I'm recommending Vasari once again. I generally prefer to read rather than listen to works of literature. However, with all the recent chaos of a new baby, a major show, and several conferences, my time has been quite limited, and I've had quite a bit of time on the road. So, I downloaded an abridged version of Vasari's Lives, read by Neville Jason. His style reminds me a little bit of the narration of Porthos in the Michael York, Richard Chamberlain, Three Musketeers of the 70s. I don't mean that as an insult, I actually found it rather enjoyable uh, and easy to follow, and I picked up on a lot of details I missed in my own reading. So if you've not yet downloaded Vasari's Lives, I recommend this version read by Jason. It was a great resource in my car rides back and forth to Florida to drop off and pick up paintings. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 11, Verrocchio. Welcome back to the Renaissance. Just a few notes before we get started. Um, I apologize for the voice. I'm recovering from a cold, so I might sound a little bit uh, unusual tonight, and that's that's why. Hopefully it won't be too annoying or obnoxious for anybody. I, my original plan was to take just four weeks off, and of course, and of course now it's been two. Um, during that time, we not only had a baby, but had three conferences and an art show, so the time for writing and podcasting just wasn't there the last few months. I do plan to get onto a regular schedule once again, now that I'm back, um, though I think we'll revise it somewhat. Originally, I'd posted a podcast weekly. I'm thinking now that we need to really look at posting every other week. Posting weekly didn't give me enough time for in-depth research, and it was really a full-time job. And as many of you know, I already have a full-time job. So, I don't have quite the time to spend 40 hours a week researching for the next podcast, but I think I can do everything within a two-week time window, and, and we'll see how this goes as we get further along. If I need to adjust this, I will. I'll try to keep it on a, on a consistent schedule, whatever that may be. So while the show is on hiatus, I did decide to do a little bit more involved research, and because so many of the artists of the early high renaissance are very closely linked, it's beneficial to study them all together as a group. So I've spent quite a bit of time researching Leonardo, Michelangelo, as well as their teachers, which are going to be the artists we discuss for the next several weeks. And I do think as we get into Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael, there's so much information there that this two-week window is going to be very helpful. Now, on to other things. 
If you caught the tour announcement, then you already know that the podcast is going on tour. This is something I'm really, really excited about. Um, in 2017, we will be conducting a tour of Italy for the listeners of the podcast. Tour is scheduled for June 20th, 2017. And I know many of you listening may think that that's a long time away, which it is. But this gives us plenty of time to plan. And for those of you who are interested in doing a payment plan, it actually lowers the monthly payment quite a bit. If you sign up before December 1st, you will receive a $250 discount. Just go to the renaissancepodcast.com and click on the tour tab. You will need the tour ID, which is D, or excuse me, capital D B Y R D 2017. So that's D, my last name, Bird B Y R D 2017. From there, you'll be able to view all the details as well as make a deposit to hold your spot on the trip. Like I said, this should be a lot of fun. We're going to hit many of the sites we've discussed in the podcast and will discuss. And the tour is going to land in Venice. And from Venice, we're heading to Florence and Assisi and then on to Rome. So we'll be able to see a lot of really important works of art. With that out of the way, let's jump back into this with the painter, sculptor, and goldsmith, Verrocchio. Andrea del Verrocchio was born in Florence as Andrea di Michele di Francesco di Cione in 1435. He was given the name Verrocchio, which means the true eye in Italian, because of his achievements in drawing and painting. Verrocchio is one of these artists who was often left out of the history books. As I thumb through Stockstad's Art History, which is your, which is your Art 101 textbook in many colleges, there's not even a brief bio on Verrocchio. In fact, he's not even listed in the index. Partly this is because he was so overshadowed by his pupil, Leonardo. Vasari's accounts can be more trusted during this period, I think, because many of these artists were known personally by Vasari. In fact, he met Verrocchio when he was very, very young, and Verrocchio was a friend of his uncle's. Though Vasari does often assert his own opinion, as we see in his analysis of artists. Vasari describes Verrocchio's work as crude and hard, and I quote, He had a manner somewhat hard and crude, as one who acquired it rather by infinite study than by facility of natural gift. Despite this, he does commend Verrocchio's study, saying, quote, But study will do a great deal, and thus Andrea, who had in a greater abundance than any other craftsman, is counted among the rare and excellent masters of our arts. I think with Verrocchio, we see an artist who may not have easily attained the status of master artist like Botticelli, but through hard work was able to build a solid reputation and career. Probably more influential than his actual work was his workshop in Florence. Verrocchio trained numerous artists, many who would overshadow him in later years, and these artists would become major figures in the Renaissance. In fact, we can link almost every major artist of the High Renaissance to Verrocchio and his studio. These include Leonardo da Vinci, Pietro Perugino, who would then train Raphael, Domenico Ghirlandaio, who would train Michelangelo, as well as Lorenzo di Credi and Francesco Botticini. As you can see, it's quite an impressive list, and every major Florentine artist of the High Renaissance either passed through his studio or they apprenticed under someone who did. Very little is known about Verrocchio's training. He was initially apprenticed to a goldsmith, but at some point he took up painting instead. It has been suggested that he trained under Donatello, 
but there's little evidence to support this theory. Alternatively, some art historians believe he was either trained or heavily influenced by Fra Filippo Lippi. This is all the information we have on his early life, even using Vasari's account. He doesn't rise to prominence until he's in Rome, where he begins studying antique sculpture. According to Vasari, he cast several pieces in Santa Maria del Fiore, including buttons and a cup depicting animals and plants, and then he was summoned to Rome by Pope Sixtus to cast figures for the altar of the Chapel of the Pope. It is in Rome that he began studying the works of ancient Greece and Rome. In particular, the bronze horse that was set up in the Lateran Cathedral. It was during this time that Verrocchio began working in marble. He was hired by Francesco Tornaboni to create a tomb for his wife, who died in childbirth. The work created for the tomb was to contain images of the three virtues. And this was Verrocchio's first major work in marble. Finding success sculpting in marble and a growing reputation, he returned to Florence where he found additional work. Once in Florence, he was commissioned by the Medici, and he becomes very close to the Medici family, eventually being commissioned to create a bronze tomb for Giovanni and Pietro di Cosimo de' Medici. One of his early works commissioned by the Medici family was a bronze statue of the David, completed sometime between 1473 and 1475. This statue represents a young David standing on the head of Goliath. It's the same motif as with other previous Davids, such as the one by Donatello, however, without the same sensuous nature as Donatello's famous Statue of David. There have been some who have claimed that the model for this piece was actually a young Leonardo da Vinci. There's no way to confirm this, but we do believe Leonardo was in Verrocchio's studio at the time of its completion. So it's not out of the question that he would have used his apprentices, his students, as models for many of his works. Possibly commissioned earlier is the Statue of Christ with St. Thomas, which may have been begun in 1467, though it wasn't completed finally until 1483. This was commissioned for the exterior niche in Orsan Michele after the Donatello sculpture was moved to Santa Croce. Now, this particular statue depicts the story from the book of John and depicts the moment after the resurrection when Christ appears to the apostles. Thomas doubts the veracity of the resurrected Christ and demands to see the wounds. If we go to the biblical account, we can get a little bit more context for this particular work. And quoting the Bible, And then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And this is the scene that we see being reenacted in the sculpture. The expression of doubting Thomas, which you may be familiar with, comes from this particular story in the Bible. In Verrocchio's interpretation, we see the interaction between Thomas and the risen Christ, Thomas reaches for the wound, and Christ raises his hand, almost like a blessing upon Thomas. Thomas seems very earthbound, but Christ is already above earthly concerns. This juxtaposes the divine world with the mortal world. Today, a bronze replica rests outside the niche, and the original sculpture is inside the church to protect it from the elements. Sometime after this commission was completed, it was decided that a gold ball would be added to the cupola of Santa Maria del Fiore. This was part of Brunelleschi's original plan. 
Verrocchio, being a sculptor as well as a goldsmith, won the commission to, a, to cast and attach the ball atop the dome. Leonardo da Vinci is known to have worked with Verrocchio on this particular commission. Not being content with his work in sculpture, Verrocchio decides to also take up painting during this time, and sometime between 1470 and 1475, we see his work of Tobias and the Angel. This is one of the first paintings that we know of from Verrocchio. It was completed in egg tempera on wood, and in this work we can actually identify the hand of Leonardo. Most likely he painted the fish and the dog in the background, and if you look on the website you'll see, be able to see an image of this. One of his next major works is The Virgin and the Child with Two Angels. And in this particular work, we see, obviously, the Virgin Mary with the Christ child. And we see the curtains being pulled away to, re to reveal the Virgin and child flanked by two angels. It's difficult to determine how much of this painting is actually by Verrocchio. He ran a very active workshop that obviously included Da Vinci and Perugino. And it's believed that Lorenzo de Credi designed and executed much of this work under the supervision of Verrocchio though it's likely that Verrocchio may have completed the finishing of this work. Again, all of this is speculation, but we can see how the artist's workshop developed during the Renaissance and employed many artists working on multiple projects. And this would be the standard we'd see well into the 17th century. If we look at the Baptism of Christ, painted somewhere around the same time, between 1472 and 1475, we see Verrocchio's work in oil. And this one's painted in oil on wood, and you can view it in the Uffizi Gallery. So if you go on the tour in 2017, you'll be able to see this piece in person. Now, likely, it was completed mostly by Leonardo inside of Verrocchio's workshop. It's possible to see the hands of other artists as well. This is where we see Verrocchio's workshop experimenting with the Flemish technique of oil painting. Previously in Italy, the primary um, means of painting was fresco. And we began, of course, seeing some egg tempera, but oil painting developed in Northern Europe and was brought down to Italy. And it's possible, looking at this work, that it could be considered one of Leonardo's earliest works. According to legend, it was this painting that caused Verrocchio to give up painting once he saw Leonardo's angels, which stood out from the rest of the work. Vasari references the event, saying... Andrea resolved never again to touch a brush, since Leonardo, young as he was, had acquitted himself in the art much better than he had done. Whether this actually happened or not, we can't be sure, but Verrocchio did spend a lot of time restoring works of art in the Medici Palace, and very few paintings were completed. So, this brings us to Verrocchio's final work, and it's a large equestrian statue. If you remember... At the very beginning of this podcast, we talked about the giant horse that was in the Lateran Cathedral. Well, likely that helped inspire Verrocchio's design. It was completed between 1480 and 1489 and was commissioned for the Republic of Venice. Like the God of Malata, it depicts a famous mercenary who fought for the Venetian Republic. Verrocchio competed with three other sculptors for the commission. What the commission was thinking, I'm not sure, but they decided to combine Verrocchio's horse with the rider of another artist. As you can imagine, Verrocchio flew into a rage, and he refused to submit to that kind of insult. He broke his model, and he fled Venice. The Venetian Sonoria ordered Verrocchio not to return to Venice upon pain of death. Verrocchio is said to have responded that he would not return to Venice, 
for it was easier for him to reattach the head of his horse than for the Republic to reattach the head of one like his. Apparently, this appealed to the Sonoria, and they relented, agreeing to allow Verrocchio to return to Venice and that he would be given complete control of the project. However, he would die before he would see it completed, and the task would be entrusted to Lorenzo de Credi, Verrocchio's student. Verrocchio was 56 when he died in 1488. I think it's important to look at Verrocchio's students and his legacy. I think this is Verrocchio's greatest contribution to the Renaissance, even more so than his art. In Verrocchio's workshop, we have all these amazing minds of the early High Renaissance. I've already mentioned Da Vinci and Ghirlandaio and Perugino. Well, every major artist of the High Renaissance can trace their lineage to Verrocchio in some form or fashion. So this makes him an extremely important figure in the world of the High Renaissance, despite the small number of works that exist today. Were it not for Verrocchio's workshop, would we even see the likes of Leonardo or Michelangelo or Raphael? It was the training that he provided that led to the development of all these other artists who did ultimately overshadow him. If you'd like to support the show, please remember you may use the Amazon search bar in the lower right corner of the website. A percentage of each purchase will go to the show and help keep the show going. You may also make a small donation through PayPal. There's a donate button located in the upper right corner where you may make a secure PayPal donation. No amount is too small, and we appreciate all donations. Join us in two weeks as we explore one of Verrocchio's many students and the teacher of Michelangelo, Ghirlandaio.